Hello and welcome to the British Food History Podcast. I am Dr. Neil Buttery, food historian and chef. Today I'm talking to returning guest Kevin Geddes. He came on last time to tell us all about the wonderful and fabulous Fanny Craddock. But today he's talking to me about television cookery shows and their cookbook tie-ins. Kevin recently wrote a very interesting paper on the early history and origins of TV cookbooks and I found it so interesting I asked him to come on because I thought you would find it interesting too. The paper, which appeared in the journal Food and Foodways back in June 2023, is called Accompanying the Series, Early British Television Cookbooks 1946-1976. to It's free to read, and I'm sure many of you will want to read more. The link is in the show notes. It's funny, when I read the paper, I realised just how important these books are for my own interest, you know, which became a hobby and then eventually a career. I've got great memories of watching TV cookery shows and cooking from the books that were tied into those shows. And I'm sure there's many that you hold dear as well. And of course, like anything, these things have a history. Someone had to come up with the idea in the first place and it didn't happen immediately. And this is what we're talking about today. I think that many memories are going to be fired off, maybe about older shows and the cooks that we talk about, or maybe newer ones. Let me know about them, as well as any comments, questions or queries that you may have. There's not many episodes now until the postbag episode, I reckon, after this one. Well, there's definitely two, maybe three. And we've all heard so much about beer, bread, oatcakes, Tudors, tavern cooking, tin food, meddlers and tripe. So I want your insights. So email me, neil at britishfoodhistory.com or leave a comment beneath a social media post or send me a DM on social media, Twitter at Neil Buttery or Instagram and now threads as doctor, that's dr underscore neil underscore buttery. Or if you like, post on the British Food History Facebook discussion page. That's at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash British Food History. If you haven't already, write a review. It only has to be two or three words. Give us a follow. Give us a rating, preferably a five-star one. If you want to support the upkeep of the podcast and the blogs by donating maybe a virtual coffee or virtual pint or a virtual anything you like by visiting the website britishfoodhistory.com and by going to the support the blog and podcast tab. All monies go into making more content. On that very same page, you can also sign up to be a monthly £3 subscriber. £3 is about US$3.80. And there you can access the premium blog content, listen to the Easter eggs, and receive a monthly newsletter. This season's been a few episodes longer than previous ones because of people subscribing and donating. So thank you very much. It's absolutely fantastic to be able to make more episodes, hopefully... This can just be a weekly thing and all I do, but you know, getting ahead of myself. And of course you can support me in other ways. You could buy a copy of one of my books, A Dark History of Sugar, just nommed at the Guild of Food Writers Awards 2023. And there's my biography of Elizabeth Raffold called Before Mrs. Beaton, both published by Pen and Sword History. Anyway, back to today. Kevin has been looking into early TV cookbooks for his PhD, so he's really done a very deep dive into this. We talked about the early cookery programmes on the BBC before the Second World War and afterwards, the post-war TV cooks, such as the theatrical Philip Harbin, and the steady pair of hands that was Marguerite Patton, and how they published their own books whilst working for the BBC, 
The BBC's worry about selling commercial products whilst being a public service broadcaster. And the one who really got it all going, Mrs. Fanny Craddock. I'll tell you about this week's Easter egg at the end of today's discussion, as well as my news. But now, early television cookbooks and tie-ins with Kevin Geddes. Welcome back to the podcast, Kevin. You're most welcome to step in again. How are you? Oh, th- th- thanks so much for having me again. Yeah, I'm absolutely great. I read your excellent research article accompanying the series about TV cooks, cookbooks and, and tie-ins. It's an excellent paper. It was it was riveting and so dense. Oh, th- thanks so much. It was really fun to do. It was a, a, a long time in the making, but really a, a kind of fun article to put together and uh, share and, you know, just in, in the way that I like to do kind of... Uh, reset some of the history that's missing I guess around these things so yeah so so thanks it's strange because it's something that I've not ever considered <laughs> only when I finished reading your paper I had a little think to myself tv show cookbook tie-ins were, were actually my way in they were my gateway drug into into cooking as a well eventually into pro- into a profession and for me Gary Rhodes He's one of the few sort of um, TV chef, proper chefs, proper inverted commas, who really try and teach you rather than just show off. So he always appealed to me. Rick Stein's Food Heroes was another big one. And I guess those two people got me, piqued my curiosity into kind of traditional British stuff, even though that wouldn't come to fruition a few years later. But the king, or should I say queen, for me is Delia Smith's complete cookery course. Everyone's queen. Yeah, everyone's queen. Delia is is it. Uh, if you think about cookbooks, you think about Delia first. Absolutely. Uh, so what, what made you sort of realise that this was an untapped area of study? <laughs> well, I think like you, like, I think I've always, all my life, been surrounded by these cookbooks that have been some way connected to, to TV and never really thought about it. I just took it for granted. You know, here's a, a television programme with someone cooking. And of course, there is a, a book that you can go out and buy and pour over and read late at night and cook from and try and recreate things with, you know, and I just kind of took it for granted. But I guess more and more as I become more and more surrounded by these books and I don't know if my house is like your house, but there's cookbooks stuffed in every uh, nook and cranny round about my home, mm-hmm. unfortunately. But, um, <laughs> you know, more and more looking at them, I just thought, God, where, where did this all start? You know, and obviously, or, or maybe not obviously, but I have been for the past few years researching a PhD into television cooking history uh, in Britain. And, and part of that, a huge part of that is the, the con- connected or tie-in um, cookbooks. So I began to wonder where they were coming from, you know, who mm-hmm. who started it, who were the the big noises in bringing it about, and how come um, today they're just everywhere, they're in everyone's home practically. You know, I'm sure mm-hmm. if you were to ask anyone, have you got cookbook? One of the 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 first ones they might mention, perhaps, are still ones by television stars. So um, yeah, it must be almost everybody if they've got some cookbooks. Probably the majority of them, surely, will have been tie-ins and they're great so where do we have to travel back in time to to kind of begin our story of tv cooks and their and their cookery books as i say it's a really really complicated situation so television started in britain in 1936 Mm -hmm. and you know for the few years before World War II, um, there were various people cooking on TV, but they were invited 
primarily, not always, but primarily to cook on TV because they had cookbooks. They were already established uh, and kind of well-known. People uh, maybe had their books or, or maybe had heard of them. Mm. Uh, and certainly they made a transition from radio to TV. So they they weren't looking to television to, you know, launch a career. Sure. Um, it, was, it was quite the other way around. Um, and it kind of makes sense because very few people were watching TV before the war. Very few people had a TV set mm-hmm. or could afford one. Uh, very few people were able to pick up the signals. You know, it's it's just a, a very experimental thing. Mm. Um, so it was generally people who were already established who, who were there. But after the war, things changed a little bit. Television took a break, a break for the war um, because it was seen as a potential propaganda tool that people could misuse. Sure. So they just switched it off completely. But when it returned in 1946, things had changed. Rationing was beginning to come to an end, food Mm. rationing, but also paper rationing. Paper had been heavily rationed during the war, so uh, people were able to produce more written material and published material, uh, and just the two things started to go in tandem. So really, um, uh, my paper really just focuses on after the war, really um, gives some context before the war, but the post-war period is Mm. the the most interesting time for me uh, to see that development of TV cooks and their their cookbooks. I guess the first person that we kind of look at or look towards is Mr. Philip Harbin. That's right. In my paper, especially, he's the first person that I that I've looked at. I find him amazing. You know, some people have never heard of him still, and uh, it's partly due to all these mysterious TV programs in the past being wiped and mm. not available to watch anymore. So people tend to forget. You know, it's a long time ago. He started cooking on TV in 1946, so you know, a long time ago. But he came from a very theatrical background. His uh, parents were both in the theatre and uh, he he was really into publicity. And, you know, I have to say, it seems that he had quite a sharp ego, really. And Mm. uh, from from the get-go, wanted to be a personality, a a celebrity, I guess. So was very eager to get on TV and, you know, couldn't really understand why um, the BBC were pushing against his ideas to to have cookbooks connected Mm. to his programmes. You know, he thought it made perfect sense. It made perfect sense for him financially because he felt that the BBC didn't really pay very much for Mm -hmm. the TV uh, shows. Then... Probably as today, actually, most of the, if not all of the TV cooks worked on a freelance basis. So they were only paid for, you know, their very short performances Mm. uh, once a week, once a fortnight, once a month, something like that on TV. You know, they were paid fairly handsomely, but it was just a kind of one off payment. And uh, that was them. They were moving on. So he wanted to make more of a career of it and make more money, I guess. But he also knew that people watching at home wanted to hold his recipes in their hands and Mm. try to cook them at home. Especially there's no repeats. You get one chance to write everything down and (laughs) you missed it. And of course, all these things are live. And I know quite a lot of mistakes sometimes creep in because, you know, the person presenting is nervous or they're running out of time or whatever. So it's really important. Were the BBC just worried that this would just appear as some kind of commercial endeavour and it would go against their ethos? Yeah, it's really, really complicated. And the BBC in history, as in 
as they are today, I guess, a, a really complicated organisation and really conflicted by a lot of the things that they do. So, you know, the BBC today would still say that they struggle with commercial ideas because they've got this public service broadcasting ethos. Mm-hmm. And it was the same back when the BBC started and when television started. But, you know, having said that, they did produce um, some commercial publications most notably things like the Radio Times or the Listener magazine, um, which included recipes. Mm -hmm. But they also produced books and pamphlets that gave details of their talks and recipes and things like that. But it was something that was more educational. So the BBC then, same thing today, split into very different departments. Mm. So um, the cookery programmes were seen as lighted entertainment or women's programs and um, but the books were published by the education department and they were quite uh saw themselves as a little bit more highbrow if you like they did publish one or two cookery distinct publications in the 20s 30s those kind of times before tv um, but yeah they were a little bit nervous about people coming on tv and using tv to promote themselves uh, and were kind of running a bit scared about what that might mean for them as an organisation and hadn't really cottoned on to the the fact that it might actually bring them more of an audience and Mm -hmm. and more people watch the programmes. So yeah, they they were nervous about it. But at the same time, they kind of realised that there was nothing really much they could do about it. So Philip Harbin was working freelance. He could do what he liked, mm-hmm. uh, basically, when he wasn't working for the BBC. Um, so long as he didn't um, say the book was endorsed by the BBC or in any way connected to them, his books became emblazoned with slogans that he was the television cook and sure. they had picked pictures of him you know leaping out of television sets and things so there was no mistaking that Mm. uh, that's that's how he was selling himself but they weren't you know a bbc publication was he putting the same recipes that were in the tv shows in in the books or was he keeping them very separate so they wouldn't get into trouble (laughs) <laughs> he 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 did a bit of both. I mean, mm. basically, there was nothing the BBC could do to stop him. If he if he did all the recipes, they were all his that time, and you know, still today, the cookery presenters were just basically asked to to fill time. You know, could could you come on on Tuesday and cook something seasonal? And, you know, it was up to them to decide what to do. So they decided on the recipes that they liked. They um, chose the recipes. Sometimes they were checked and endorsed by uh, people like the Ministry of Food, but sometimes they they weren't. So they were his recipes. They were his ideas. He scripted everything. Mm-hmm. Um, he even on his television programmes, he even decided what what music was playing and, you know, what the set might look like. So he was very much in control. So he's producing it and directing it to some degree himself. Yeah. And the BBC were just delighted because they were able to fill up this space and, you know, didn't really have to do too much and ticked a little box that said, women have got fancy programmes now. That's that's great. So he, he wanted to take that to cookbooks. He was very careful never to exactly copy the format. So if he did a series, um, he did series on, you know, learning to cook, cookery lessons, he called them, or he did uh, a series about old British traditional recipes that he he travelled around the country collecting. Hmm. Um, he did books about them as well, and each chapter kind of mirrored an episode of his series. But that, you know, that's where the similarities kind of started and ended. The recipes mm. were the same. Perhaps the chat was the same, but, you know, it wasn't sold as a BBC book, but 
it's a very much a, a Philip Harbin book who you probably know from the TV. Yeah, it was a very big personality, it seems. I haven't seen too much of his stuff, I must admit. But uh, I find him a very interesting character. Running in parallel time, I suppose, to him was Marguerite Patton. Yeah. Who was very different, as much as you could say, to, to Philip. Re- really different. Philip was really flamboyant and really theatrical, really aware of his image. He crafted this unusual image of a, a bearded, bald guy. You know, unusual at the time, you know, highly fashionable these days, but you know, unusual at the time, who wore um, a shirt with a tie and a a butcher's apron. He was kind of unmistakable on TV. Mm. And if we think about the kind of tiny TV sets and the really poor images, he would really stand out in in black and white. Marguerite Patton was asked if she could appear as a very traditional housewife in kind of flowery flowery frocks and pinafores and, and stuff like that. And she was tasked with appealing more to housewives at home um, mm. And actually, that that's the kind of cook that she was. She she loved to demonstrate and teach people and kind of get their recipes too. So she became um, quite famous in the, the 40s and 50s for cooking recipes from people at home. You know, they would mm. send in the recipes and they would sometimes join her in the studio. So she, she did do a lot of cookbooks at that, that time as well. And in the same way as Philip Harbin, she would say from television, Marguerite Patton. But she was more scared, I think, of the reaction from the BBC than Philip was. He was quite brash about it. Sure. Marguerite, from the the, the notes and files that I've been able to, to access at the BBC, she kind of went along with whatever the BBC asked her. So if they said to her, please don't publish that book or please don't mention that you're on television, she would be concerned that her, her livelihood would uh, mm. be impacted. I suppose Philip Harbin would just try and work a way around it. <laughs> I just have to be a bit more sneaky. Yeah, you know, he he was more creative. He's more innovative. You know, I, I guess that's the the kind of entrepreneur in him. Margaret Patton was very different and very kind of steady pair of hands. She's become incredibly well known because she just kept going. You know, she kept writing and and publishing and republishing and regurgitating all her cookbooks, you know, well into later life. You know, she had hundreds of books. She's a legend. Um, Legend of TV and print, really, isn't she? I mean, if if any listeners haven't come across Marguerite Patton, you need to go and check her out. Fantastic. uh, Absolutely, and quite rightly, you know. But she's... She's remembered now primarily because of that longevity. So she wasn't all that popular initially on TV. and She wasn't all that well known. Um, she wasn't all that well liked initially within the BBC either. But she was, you know, as I say, a steady pair of hands who mm. kept going and became a kind of much loved uh, national treasure. But Philip Harbin was much more in there and like, I will do business, I will make money, I will change things. So a a real contrast. They cooked on TV together. There were three of them, actually, in in the 50s. Um, Philip Harbin, Margaret Patton, and uh, my other favourite, Joan Robbins, who didn't get involved in all this nasty business about cookbook tie-ins. She she did a few, but, you know, she she had other other things going on. But, yeah, Margaret and and Philip were the the kind of main concerns, I suppose, in, in the 50s. I suppose Philip is kind of cooking as entertainment, Marguerite is cooking 
as well home economics as education yeah and you know that's that's very much the the view and at the time the bbc again were quite conflicted about that i guess um, a lot of my answers uh, to your questions here are going to be the bbc were quite confused and quite conflicted by things they weren't sure if kukri was entertainment or education mm-hmm. uh, perhaps they still haven't worked it out. Perhaps there is no easy answer. Um, so they they used to do cookery programmes in the afternoon, around about three o'clock, and then they would repeat them in the evening. And I'd say repeat them, they, they weren't recorded and repeated. They, they asked the presenters to do it again, hmm. almost like a matinee in an evening performance. Sure. And they, they found that in the evening, people liked much more entertaining programmes. And in the afternoon, they liked more instructional mm. programmes. And so that's a format that they still do, I guess, and they continue to do for many years. Uh, but Philip certainly was much more entertaining. He had much more opportunity to do entertaining programmes. He did that great Tudor one, didn't he? Tudor cooking. He did, yeah. A kind of whole evening of Elizabethan cooking. Mm. Um, I, I was going to say, and I'm not sure that she would probably thank me, but um, he reminds me a lot of people like Annie Gray. He, at the drop of a hat, would get into a costume and, you know, liven up a performance by by <laughs> returning to history. He did some really weird and wonderful programmes. I think I mentioned that he went, travelled around Britain, kind of collecting traditional British recipes, supposedly before they died off forever. And he would do things like he would dress up as a pantomime cow and things like that for the screen. You know, mm-hmm. th- things that are completely lost in history because they don't exist. So he he did all these things. He loved a bit of dressing up, basically. And he felt that he was doing that to engage people at home, to entertain them, to get them hooked on cooking. Really, it still was his aim to get people to cook, but to understand that cooking wasn't something new. It was something that was always there in history and that he was leaning very heavily on kind of historical ideas and historical recipes to to do so. Marguerite Patton wanted to bring some kind of modernity to to cooking Mm -hmm. and, you know, wanted to use kind of ingredients that people were using at home. Philip was much more flamboyant. But we're getting closer. We've got some people publishing books and they're on the TV. Who was it who actually managed to get the BBC to publish some things together? Well, it was a a wonderful woman um, Mm -hmm. who was known for her reputation for um, not taking no for an answer, Um, (laughs) who had very definite ideas, who who really built on a lot of Philip Harbin's ideas of entrepreneurship on TV. And um, that was my very favourite, Fanny Craddock. Of course. I've written a lot about her kind of entrepreneurship, I, I suppose, but she really did push a lot of boundaries within the BBC, particularly around cookbooks. She just simply could not understand why they didn't want to publish her cookbooks. And she had a very different take on it. Philip Harbin wanted to publish cookbooks uh, primarily to make money, mm-hmm. primarily to sell cookbooks and to be known as uh, the kind of first and foremost cook in, in, in the land, you know, in a, a kind of very Jamie Oliver kind of way you know he wanted to be everywhere and have his hands and everything mm-hmm. Fanny Craddock initially wanted to sell cookbooks just to keep her career going really and she wanted to use the the kind of enormous sales that she knew cookbooks could uh, have it was important to her to connect with with the viewers um, because she, well for start she was being in ill infiltrated with people saying can I have the recipe for this can I have the recipe for that so from practical for practical reasons and I guess as as proof that it needed doing 
<laughs> she was kind of submitting all this as, as evidence. The BBC were just still still scared. Yeah, and mm. you know, part part of the reason that they were a bit unsure is that some of the evidence that she submitted, I'm not sure, was real evidence. Um, it, you know, I, I've seen the evidence, and it's all typed. In a very similar way to her own letters, uh, and you know some of the the typed letters jump around in the same way that her own typewriter did. Okay. So I'm not I'm not suggesting that she she made them up, but she she certainly gathered a huge huge deal of uh, correspondence from from people, and she knew that she, as you say, connected with the audience at home. And they, in her words, were begging for her her cookbooks and her recipes, and um, she she just simply knew that she could um, sell many many many. Mm. She she had published cookbooks and she'd sold many cookbooks, um, and she was in demand from various publishers. Um, so it wasn't that she couldn't publish cookbooks and couldn't sell them. They they sold in huge numbers, but she wanted the BBC to publish her cookbooks and to have that kind of stamp of this is a BBC publication. Before that, when she was receiving all these letters and uh, all that kind of stuff, she would type out her recipes herself and get them duplicated uh, and send them out under her own steam to people who, who wrote in. Mm just to convince the BBC that there was a market. So she kind of did all the market research herself. And she said, look, I've had 10,000 requests that I can't can't do this anymore. Mm. Um, Please, will you publish these recipes? And also, please, will you build it into my contract that I'll write the book and I'll design the book. And of course, my my husband, Johnny, can take the photos and he'll need paid for that too. So um, there was all (laughs) sorts of connections that she made, but she did cook on the BBC, but she also cooked on ITV and she was very connected to uh, kind of commercial interests. And uh, part of her drive, if you like, was that she was being paid by producers of aluminium foil, of butter, of ovens of you name it whatever she she used on screen she was being paid to do so she wanted to include all those uh things as well in her cookbooks and kind of join up the dots really in the way that we almost take for granted with people like Nigella today mm. you know when we see Nigella cooking with a new mixer we're like oh oh we want that even though sure. we've got a perfectly good mixer and <laughs> um, you know we kind of covet these things Fanny really understood that and you can get around it I suppose can't you because you've got to cook with something on a cooking show even if you weren't advertising consciously you're advertising because you've got to use something uh, absolutely absolutely and it it comes back to that kind of funny nature of television cooking programs where the presenters were freelance. Obviously, the TV studios were brand new. I almost said spit new, which is a, a Fanny Craddockism there, drop into <laughs> my life willy nilly. But um, the studios didn't have, you know, functioning kitchens or um, kind of any setup really. So almost everything that you see, in, particularly in Fanny Craddock's program, she said, oh, it's okay. I'll bring it all in with me. I'll. You know, get my cooker shipped in. I'll get my equipment, my worktop. All you need to provide is the the cameras and the lights. I'll do everything else. And the BBC were like, "Oh, this is brilliant! Here's someone that we're paying to do a show, and they're they're practically making it for us." Uh, of course, Fanny was just rubbing her hands, thinking, "Brilliant! I can promote all the products that I'm being paid to, and then write about them too." So she was very savvy, kind of business. Uh, but she used her cookbook sales particularly to 
make sure that she was offered another series at BBC. So not only was she telling the BBC you could sell loads of these, she demonstrated it. She pushed them so hard that they eventually said to her, OK, just do one cookbook to go with your series. And it was a, a booklet for her home cooking series mm. in 1965. Just do one and we'll try it. And they ended up printing it something like 27 times, um, <laughs> 27 print runs, because they just sold thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of it. And they sold them and they had to employ people to send them out and you know all that kind of stuff. It wasn't just you know Fanny Craddock's evidence that viewers wanted it. People actually did. And they, they purchased these things in, in droves. Fanny had been paid initially just a, a contracted fee to put them together. She she did eventually negotiate a kind of royalty scheme with them, mm. uh, which was not something that was usual for the BBC and, again, caused them quite a lot of concern. But, yeah, I, I, I believe anyway, um, although she wasn't the first in any way, she was the first to connect that audience at home with the idea that there could be some commercialism mm. uh, within the BBC that would be acceptable, I suppose, to them and would actually increase their audience, which is really what they were concerned about. So yeah. if all these hundreds and thousands of people who'd bought Fanny Craddock's uh, publication at the beginning of the series watched um, throughout the series and actually some of the copies that I've got of those books have you know pencil notes in them from people who were watching along saying ah she did it differently here or mm. um, here's an extra tip you know that kind of thing so just anecdotally I, I think that people were using them to watch and then cooking with them um, and she she knew that they're very simple books no kind of fuss or, or bluster, but they were uh, kind of cheaply produced, sold fairly cheaply and, mm -hmm. and sold in a kind of mass market way that the BBC wasn't quite prepared for. I was going to ask, was the publication of Time Book the way the BBC got funny back from absconding to ITV? Because she went to ITV for the to make the money, but she always wanted to be part of the BBC because of the esteem. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So ITV at the time was still quite, this was like in 1955. She started off um, on the BBC and she went to, to ITV, but it was still quite patchy around the country. It didn't have many viewers. You know, the, the reception wasn't, wasn't great. The BBC, however, was more or less countrywide. Mm. And she, she made a big effort in the mid 60s to get back to the BBC because she knew that's where the, the biggest audience was. So, so yeah, I, th I think it was beneficial beneficial for, uh, for her, but beneficial for them. Um, so she would then sell her ideas for every series. And I have to say, just in the same way, every series that Fanny did, she she pitched the ideas, she scripted them, she uh, did the recipes, she she wrote the cookbooks, you know, all those kind of things um, together. But the cookbooks went with the programme. So she would say, here are, you know, an idea for 12 episodes of my next series. Here's the book, which has 12 chapters that coincide with that. And they followed almost exactly the, the kind of format of the TV show. So she did well, the BBC did well. There was kind of a, a kind of fully functioning thing there that they could free up some space in, in the Radio Times as well. They didn't have to publish the odd recipe and, and deal with the thousands of requests for the recipes that weren't published. They were all there, every recipe that she cooked was was there you could you could do them again at home mm. and she made it easy for them and they found it quite interesting that they could make quite a bit of money from it mm, i suppose they never look back 
<laughs> rubbed their yeah. hands. It, it, it took them a long time. You know, as things changed after Fanny in the 70s and 80s, but it still took them quite a bit of time to get their head around it. And, you know, what, what we see today is books that are published as BBC books and kind of promoted and advertised, you know, really clearly on BBC by, by the book. If you go into any supermarket particularly they have their kind of top 10 books of the week and five or six of them will be cookbooks from from tv shows um you know so they're they're big sellers and it's been an evolution for the bbc to come to that that part and you know they've got a a whole publication branch i guess that that Mm. looks after cookbooks now but it wasn't always the case but certainly uh not something that they always aimed towards but I guess they they wouldn't look back now you know you can't imagine anyone appearing on anything whether they're the main presenter or not you know not having a a spin-off tie and cookbook um, to go with it and the BBC control it you know that they don't want the Philip Harbins of the world running off and publishing their own books and saying you probably saw me on TV here's my book buy it Mm -hmm, they mm -hmm. want it to be a BBC book I've got so many in my collection you know Keith Floyd is one of the, one of my favourites, of course. He really cashed in. I suppose in the eighties you had the beginnings of relatively cheap colour photography and things going in, going in books. Maybe it was just coincidence, but they could really leap on the the new technologies in, in printing and publication. Yeah, absolutely, and mm. you know, particularly not not so much in the seventies, but definitely in the eighties they did their cookbooks. The, the the first few that that Delia did with them um, were very much in the style of uh, Fanny Craddock's booklets. You know, they are booklets, and mm. you know they've got lovely covers and things like that. But they they haven't really got anything um, inside. Originally, back in the thirties and and forties, they did a lot of illustrations in their books and some photography actually. But yeah, mm. the the kind of color photography changed things a lot, and people were able to to showcase their their colorful creations in a way that that Fanny Craddock wishes that she could have done, I guess, in those books. Have you got any favorites that stand out in in real life, not um, professional life? <laughs> Gosh, it, is there a difference between real me and professional me? <laughs> oh gosh, I didn't I didn't realize this was going to be like a counselling session for me as well. But yeah, it's hard it's hard to split. Um, I think that my favourites definitely are still kind of vintage books. I, I love a lot of the BBC publications. So what one of my favourites is someone that's almost forgotten is Michael Smith, and he did uh, lots of series about historical cookery on TV mm. and it was called Grace and Grace and Flavor. And um he actually did Good. a lot of Elizabeth Raffold's uh, recipes and that's recreated right. them. And yes. he produced an enormous amount of books. Um, but it kind of launched into lots of different people like the cooking canon um and people like that. Um, so I, I like some of their books too. You know, they're they're full of like real uh, nuggets of recipes but you know Delia's BBC books are you know really interesting as well you know they're really great and they recreate some of the programs that we're still not able to see as well um, but they they kind of mm. show the formation of, of her um, I love love her books um, who else well you know I, I guess some of the books on my shelf today are still people like Nigella you know I have her books I love to to read her books um, and cook from them occasionally do you think that, I mean, as historians, we don't like looking into the future or even looking at the present necessarily, <laughs> but um, with, with uh, obviously you can also find any recipe that's been in a BBC show or Channel 4 or whatever by going online and just printing it off. It seems to be, though, that this seems to be pretty safe from the internet. I guess it's because people still love to flick through a book. 
it probably comes down to that, doesn't it? Again, I'm projecting. <laughs> I think yeah, that's no. I think that's why. I mean, I use it if I know exactly what I want. I'll just type yeah. it into Google. But if I don't yeah. know what I want, and most of the time we don't know what we want, <laughs> you can have a you know a, a kind of flick through one one of those books. And I think you know it, it, they become a bit of a, a status symbol. People like to to have them on their shelves. You know, I guess particularly during lockdown, you would see you know rows and rows of Nigella's books in people's backgrounds, and you know people are always sharing their their photos of food splattered books from from Delia or from Nigella or from Jamie online. You know, they love to show that not only do they love the program, but they can do it at home. Perhaps they can do it better than Jamie ever did. You know, uh, they can put their own spin on things but I think people like to have that kind of physical book you know whereas I'm not sure I, I don't know in the stats but you know I think that Kindle cookbooks are, are no way as popular probably because you can just google and get anything who, yeah. who knows but people like to have a kind of physical book particularly the ones that are connected to TV now yes they have the recipes from TV but they also have a whole host of other ones that aren't on TV you know they're not just simply here's the recipes that you've seen me cook. You know, they're, I was going to say proper cookbooks, but that's not quite what I mean because, uh, you know, I love all these old books too. But um, they're more kind of traditional in, in that sense that they mm. they stuff them full of loads of recipes that you could try, not just the ones that you see. Well, it's almost time to wrap up, Kevin. It's been great talking to you about this. What else is coming up? Is this research into cookery books going to appear anywhere else? Or have you got anything else in the in the pipeline that we need to know about? Well, I'm really busy at the moment trying to finish off my PhD. So hopefully in the next month or so that will be finished um, and fingers crossed. It seems to have gone well. And this this research actually on cookbooks kind of spans my whole PhD journey. So it started off uh, as a conference paper in, in Portsmouth right at the beginning of my journey and um, has only just been published. Um, so some of that research will feature in my PhD. And after the PhD, I'd love to go on and write some more books and do more research uh, around TV about cooking. And, um, you know, I think cookbooks themselves are a really kind of rich resource to to kind of look at and reflect on and to to, to see how we're using today. So, yeah, I hope so. Um, I think there'll be lots more published from, from me, certainly, but hopefully new research to do as well. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for, for coming on and, well, hopefully speak to you again soon. I certainly hope so. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Kevin. Kevin's paper is available to read via his page on the Napier University website, link in show notes. In fact, it's quite a lot in the show notes this week because I've added Kevin's social media and blog are very easy to remember because it's all the same thing. Keep calm and fanny on. I've added some very early clips from TV shows that I've found on the internet about the people that we mentioned. I thought it'd be useful so you can actually see these people in action. Philip Harbin talks about boiling, i.e. poaching techniques. Marguerite Patton introduces a show from the 1950s. And Fanny Craddock introduces us to some fish cookery. There are also some clips from Delia Smith's Complete Cookery course, which, by the way, is available on iPlayer, people in the UK. There's also some of Gary Rhodes' BBC show, Roads Around Britain. I've also left links to Kevin's book, Keep Calm and Fanny On, a biography of Fanny Craddock, as well as it's all in the booklet about her recipes and photographs. It's a great, it's a great, great thing. And I've also left a link to Kevin's previous appearance on the podcast talking about Fanny Craddock. Right, today's Easter egg, there's just one this week. 
Kevin and I discuss whether TV cookbooks are frowned upon by proper cookery writers. I mean, I rate them, but, you know, let me know what you think. Access that Easter egg and all of the others and the premium content by going to the website. Check out the Easter eggs page and check out the support, the blog and podcast page. All right, other news. I appeared on a podcast called Truly Scrumptious with Lottie Duncan. It's about food festivals normally, but they're having a bit of a break of festival chat. And I came on for a special bonus episode to talk about Elizabeth Raffold. Lottie is a big fan of hers too. So it was a really good fun chat. I left the link to that if you want to hear it. I have my events in September. More details specifically about the one at Chelsea History Festival on the 29th of September. So have a look in the show notes there. I've also left information about my Elizabeth Raffold event at Manchester Central Library and at Ludlow Food Festival, all happening in September. They're all in the show notes. I'm actually off on holiday for a bit now. I'm off to Crete, away from the most rainy time we've had in England probably ever. Apparently it was the rainiest July for a hundred years. Nice. But there might be a slightly longer gap between episodes. Hopefully not too long. I've tried my best to get ahead of myself. So it won't be ages or anything. But in case you're wondering why there's maybe a little little gap that's longer than usual, that's the reason. Well, that or I've decided to stay in Crete. Okay, it's time for me to toddle off. Have a great week. I shall see you next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.